Um, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, continuing our super summer sabbatical sermon series with you. Um, uh, in the eight years that we have been a church together, this is going to be the longest amount of time that Bryce has actually taken off of preaching and off of work. And um, if you know Bryce, we know this is a good thing uh, for him. Uh, he works hard and sometimes he maybe overworks himself. Um, and it's because he loves his family and it's because he loves us. Um, if you, some of you know, but maybe some of you don't uh, know how much Bryce gives of himself and his time. You know, he preached on generosity a uh, week before last and um, he exudes that. He gives of his time and his, his home. He opens his home. And um, uh, anyways, it is uh, a good thing for, for Bryce to be taking some time off, and we're excited for him. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to be uh, continuing on in our Disciplines of Grace sermon series. Um, Blake always comes up with the graphics for these series, and I'm really glad that he picked this tree. Um, Bryce preached from Psalm 1 on our first week. And uh, it illustrates the life of a spiritually disciplined person uh, with these words. Uh, Psalm 1 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and it does not wither. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we see in the picture of the tree and in the description from Psalm 1 a picture of of spiritual health and prosperity. The man who delights in the Lord and meditates on his law day and night, uh, is it, it, it doesn't make you God's little teacher pet. You know? uh, it doesn't make you like God's favorite. Uh, it, it, it makes you, a, you become a person who is nourished <clears throat> by the Holy Spirit in a deeply satisfying and fruitful relationship. When Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, this is the kind of abundance that he was talking about. Uh, the abundance that comes by his salvation and through his sanctification. He saves us from the slavery and the penalty of sin. And then he begins a lifelong work of making us holy in heart and in conduct. And when we cultivate spiritual disciplines, we are joining with God. We are welcoming God's work of sanctification in our lives. Um, if you know me very well or just by looking at me, you can probably tell that I am not much of an outdoorsman. Uh, I enjoy being outside. I enjoy nature, um, going on walks in the woods and admiring creation. And, like, I enjoy all that. Um, dirt and sweat and bugs and things like that. Like, I have, it takes me a minute to get over myself uh, when, when it's going to be that, that sort of thing, um, which is... Which makes it very surprising how much I have come to love gardening. Uh, because every day it involves sweat and uh, bugs and dirt. Like, like literal, like digging in the dirt. Um, but um, I've, I've really come to enjoy gardening. Uh, Lexi and I have made a few attempts over the years to keep a garden. But uh, in 2019, so two summers ago, uh, we uh, made this little bed in our yard. I think there's a picture of it up here. Maybe. Oh, there we go. Okay. So we made, we made this little bed in our yard, um, and we were pretty proud of it. Uh, and so we grew some tomatoes and some squash. Uh, we drew some, grew some eggplants and I think some green onions and mint uh, maybe that year. And um, it went pretty well. Uh, things went really well with the tomatoes. Uh, that's the next one. Uh, they're redder than they look in this picture. Uh, we got a lot of tomatoes, and that was cool. Things did not go as well with the squash. Uh, <laughs> The bugs, the bugs got to the squash, which was kind of a bummer because that's the thing I was most looking forward to. We did not get any squash uh, that year. Um, but, you know, we learned some things. We, uh, we figured out, you know, some things to do and some things not to do. Um, so the next year, last year, we decided to expand the garden to this. So we had the, 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 the piece along the fence, and then we kind of got this kind of L shape happening now. And so we, we planted more squash. We planted several varieties of tomatoes and banana peppers and jalapeno peppers. Um, 
uh, all kinds of stuff. We really kind of branched out last year. And it went a lot better than the first year. We actually got some squash and some cucumbers before the bugs got them. The bugs did get them, but we got a few uh, before things went south. Um, so much so that we started making our own salsa. Look at that. I see, the picture's not very good. Um, but let me tell you something. That salsa is really good. Uh, and Bryce knows this. Bryce uh, liked our salsa so much that he carried a jar of that salsa into a Mexican restaurant with him to eat that salsa instead of the salsa from the restaurant. And uh, so anyways, uh, yeah, uh, it went really well. Uh, and so all that to say, this year we started composting, right? So we're, we're saving food scraps and coffee grounds and tea bags uh, and composting them to enrich the soil and the bed. Uh, and then we expanded the garden even more. So now we got along the fence and then the L shape and then back around. Uh, and we added this, this uh, trellis that goes across, kind of an arch, to let the tomatoes grow up so that they're not crowding out things. Um, we planted marigolds all around the garden because marigolds are natural like bug repellent to keep the bugs off of the squash. And I'm happy to say that the majority of our squash plants are doing really well so far. We haven't gotten any squash, but they are looking, they're looking good, most of them. Um, and we planted a whole bunch of stuff, and we're really excited about it. Uh, I made our first jar of salsa earlier this week, and so yeah. Why do I like gardening so much? I don't know. Uh, it surprises uh, me just as much as it surprises you. Uh, but the point uh, of all of this is that it's taken us a few years of, of cultivating and trying some things out before we found uh, what works to get to where we are. Um, lots of composting and planting and planting and watering and pulling weeds and trying different salsa recipes. Um, and we still have figure, things to figure out because the, now the bed next to the fence isn't, isn't flourishing quite as much as this newer bed over here. So we're, we're still figuring things out. It's a process. And the process of sanctification, the process of cultivating these disciplines in our lives, it, it's a lifelong process that we just keep working towards. And if we tend to these disciplines, um, then the Lord is, is going to sanctify us. He's going to make us strong like that tree planted by the rivers of water. And he is going to bring about fruit in our lives. And so that's why we're doing this sermon series, to remind ourselves, to remind each other of what spiritual disciplines should look like in our lives and of what can happen in our lives because of it. So today we're going to uh, look at one of the disciplines that I think can get overlooked uh, compared with some of the other ones, and that is the discipline of solitude. Uh, so we are going to be reading uh, from Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, and you should, hopefully, or if you have an app on your phone, uh, open up to, to Luke chapter 22, and uh, we are going to read verses 39 through 46 of Luke chapter 22. Uh, this passage is immediately after the Last Supper. They've just finished that. So Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, it says this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray before we get, jump in here. Lord, may we read your word and believe it and think about it. Lord, let your word shape us as we examine it today and as we think on it. Lord, help us to see the benefits of cultivating spiritual disciplines. Help us to see the kind of life that we can have, uh, the abundant life that you give us um, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit and the work of your sanctification. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, help us to be humble as we hear your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, <clears throat> the Mount of Olives seems to have been his spot. It was just outside the city, so presumably it was a little bit quieter. Uh, and it overlooks the city itself. Uh, in Jesus' day, part of the mountain, and, and now a lot of the mountain, is a cemetery. So uh, 
people like the prophets uh, Zechariah and Haggai uh, and Malachi. Yeah, and Malachi, they're all buried there. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a quieter, it's intended to, was intended to be a quieter, more peaceful place. The Garden of Gethsemane was kind of at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And so whenever he was in Jerusalem, he would hang out there. He would sleep there sometimes. Uh, when he entered Jerusalem the week that he was crucified, uh, riding on the donkey, he came from the Mount of Olives. Uh, he would retreat there with his disciples, and they would talk, and they would eat, and they would be together and, and speak privately. It was his custom to go there, is what Scripture tells us. That was something that he did. Uh, that's how Judas knew where he was going to be uh, when he brought the, the soldiers to him. Um, and also, as it was his custom, that seems to be the reason Jesus went there in the first place, because it was kind of a place of comfort for him. Uh, he knew what was about to be happening to him. He knew what was about to go down. And he was burdened, and so he went to a place of comfort, a place of quiet. And that's what the Mount of Olives was to him. Um, but his retreat to the Mount of Olives uh, is not just about going to this specific place. It was a part of a larger trend in his life, a larger habit, which was the habit of solitude. Um, it's clear from the Gospels uh, that this is true. Getting alone to commune with his father uh, was a priority in Jesus' life. And to, so today we're going to look at some of the examples of how this habit uh, shaped his life and affected the people around him. So our first point for the day uh, is that Jesus' habit of solitude is worth imitating. Jesus' habit of solitude is worth imitating. There are some things in Scripture that we imitate, uh, that we do, uh, because we, we can see the benefits of doing it. It's not something that Scripture necessarily commands, but it's something that we see, this is beneficial, so let's do it. Uh, but solitude is actually something that Jesus commanded us to do. So if we're going to look at why we should imitate this, we're going to start with Jesus commanded us to do it. That's letter A under this. Jesus commanded us to practice solitude. So the primary way that a Christian worships is individually, personally. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we, should choo that we choose personal worship over uh, corporate worship, right? There's a, there's a lot of people in the world that think, yeah, me and Jesus, we've got things figured out. You know, we, I worship on my own time. I worship, you know, alone in the woods or out on the golf course or whatever. Like, I don't need to go to church. That's not what I'm, I'm saying um, because the Bible clearly commands both. But what I'm talking about is the proper ordering of things. Uh, Jesus saved us into the living organism of the church, this community. And we worship together a couple of times a week, and com we communicate throughout the week, and we share our lives together. But most of the time, we are not together. Most of the time, we are separate. We are individuals living our lives. And so personal worship should be, that's, that's the kind of worship that, that dominates our life if, if we're worshiping. Uh, if our priority is corporate worship and not personal worship, we become like the Pharisees. They were um, very concerned with uh, their appearances and their reputations and upholding the norms of their kind of religious upper class. Um, Jesus, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, really pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. Their treasure was in their persona. Uh, Blake read uh, from the Sermon on the Mount last week that where your uh, heart is, there your treasure will be also. Their, their treasure was in what they looked like to the world. On the contrary, Jesus said that we should beware of practicing our righteousness before men. This is still really common in 2021. Uh, maybe we have something that we're going to do, and it's a good thing. It's like a legitimately righteous thing. But we do it, and we take a video of it. Or we take a picture of it, and we post it on social media so that other people can see and appreciate what we're doing and admire what we're doing. Uh, we want approval of other people. Or maybe we want to, like, prove that we are morally superior to other people. That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? That's us becoming like the Pharisees. That's us being concerned with the public appearance of our worship. Uh, Jesus said that we should not practice our righteousness to be seen. Uh, turn with me, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today, but I'm not going to make you go to all the places. But we are, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, for the third week in a row and the third preacher in a row, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 6. Um, it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount was kind of an important thing. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 5 and 6. And this is what Jesus said. Uh, and he's talking about practicing your righteousness before men. 
And he's talking about the Pharisees and how you shouldn't be like them. And he says this in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. The mask wearers is, is how Bryce referred to them a few weeks back. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the proper order to our worship habits is private worship that overflows into corporate worship, that overflows into us proclaiming the gospel to the world. And so there's, there's going to be cross-pollination in that, right? Our corporate worship should uh, affect our private worship and all of these things. But that's kind of the order that, that's the proper ordering of things. And at the center of our private worship is solitude, being alone with God. Did Jesus worship corporately? Yes. Did he pray in public? Yes. But his public persona was not the prize or reward that he was seeking. It was the fruit of who he was personally. He practiced what he preached. Jesus habitually got alone with God the Father to pray, to think, to be ministered to, and to leave us an example to follow. And in the human sense, that's one of the things that made him who he was, being alone with his Father. Jesus said we should be the kind of people who, one, pray, and prayer is going to get its own sermon in this sermon series, so don't worry about that. Um, And two, the kind of people who should get alone to pray. And the first logical question that we ask is, why? Why do we have to be the people who should get alone to pray? Well, in the context of this passage, the, the most obvious answer is that the hypocrites are the ones who pray in public, and, you shouldn't, and, and, and they, that's where they put their value in the treasure, and you shouldn't be like them. So that's the most obvious. Like, don't be that guy. Be somebody different. Be like me. That's the first uh, answer to the question. But then the other, Jesus answers the question in another way because he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's this other reward that is not like the praise and admiration of other people. It's something from God the Father himself. God sees our private worship. He is present there and he will reward us. What does that mean? Does that mean that God will give us anything that we ask privately? Well, When Jesus was praying privately in the passage we just read a minute ago, he asked God that if it was his will to take the cup of wrath away from him. And God did not do that. So, no, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that God's going to give you whatever you want when you pray privately. Uh, And Jesus doesn't really say precisely what the reward will be. But I think Psalm 1 gives us an idea of the kind of reward that Jesus means. Because if we look at Psalm 1, we see a man who is spiritually healthy and prosperous, and satisfied. And, and who better illustrates that than Jesus himself? Like what other human in all of human history was more satisfied and more prosperous spiritually than Jesus? He was, uh, you know, the Psalm 1 talks about the tree planted by the streams of water. Well, Jesus is the vine in which the branches of the church find their life. Like he is the the archetype, the, the best version of that tree in Psalm 1. And so we're going to look at Jesus' habit of solitude um, and uh, the effect it had on his life. He commanded us to do it. He practiced it himself. Uh, and his life exhibits the spiritual and eternal and even the physical benefits of being alone with God. We don't have time to cover every verse uh, about Jesus excusing himself or a lot of times just like ghosting people and just taking off to go be by himself with God. Uh, But we're going to mention a few uh, because uh, the Lord ministers in a unique way in solitude. That's the next point. The Lord ministers uniquely in solitude. There's something particular that the Lord does when we are alone with him. A unique, personal sort of work that does not happen when other people are around. It's not some higher plane of spirituality. That's not what I mean. It's a part of his larger work, but it's an important part. Uh, The same could be said about corporate worship. God does a special thing when we are alone with him. If you scan through the Gospels and you kind of just pay attention to like the beginnings and endings of paragraphs and uh, sections of stories, you'll see that they often refer to Jesus withdrawing to be alone. The first time in his life that we really see this uh, is when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness right after he'd been baptized. Uh, And so he fasted there for 40 days and 40 nights. Blake talked about that last week. And at the end of that time, Satan came to him and tempted him. 
And each time he resisted that temptation with the words of Scripture, right? But at the end of that story, Matthew 4.11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Angels showed up to minister to Jesus. That's exactly what happened in the passage we read earlier when he was in Gethsemane. Uh, in, the, in, the, in his agony in Gethsemane, uh, it says in Luke that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is special. I don't really recall any instances of angels showing up to minister to him when he was uh, preaching to the people on the mountainside or when he was uh, turning over the tables in the temple or when he was healing people or when he was standing before Pilate. This is something that happened privately when Jesus was by himself with his father. Uh, it, coincidentally, that's when he was most vulnerable, right? I mean, these, these times when he was uh, weak and tired physically, uh, that, that's when the angels came and ministered to him, and they did this work in his life. Uh, so do angels, angels minister to us when we get alone with God? I don't know. Maybe. But I do know that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. If you are a Christian, if Jesus has saved you, then the Holy Spirit himself lives within us. And when we are alone with him, he will minister to us. It's guaranteed. So whether the angels show up or not, it doesn't really matter because the Holy Spirit of God is with us. So this kind of unique ministry happens. Uh, it's not just, it wasn't limited just to Jesus' life on earth. Think back through the rest of Scripture. Think of God's presence with Abraham when he called him outside in the middle of the night and told him to count the stars and said, that's how big your family is going to be, old man. Right? Think of Jacob asleep in the middle of nowhere with a rock as his pillow and God appears to him and tells him that he was going to give him the land that he's sleeping in. That he was going to keep the promise made to Abraham. And so <laughs> Jacob wakes up and says, surely the, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Think of Moses at the burning bush or on Mount Sinai or, or when he would go alone into the tent of meeting and he would come out with his faith, face glowing so much that he had to wear a veil. Uh, think of the prophet Samuel as a boy in the temple laying down to go to sleep and he hears a voice. He thinks, somebody, he thinks Eli's calling him, so he goes down the hall, and Eli's like, it's not me. It was the voice of the Lord, and he had a message that he wanted Samuel to deliver to the people of Israel. Think about Elijah, when he was by himself by the brook, and the Lord was sending ravens with food for him to eat. Think about Ananias. Uh, this is the guy in Acts that the Lord appears to and says, listen, I want you to go to this place and you know the guy, Saul, right? He's there and he's blind and I want you to, to go put your hands on him and pray that he could receive his sight. And Ananias is like, Saul? Like that guy? And she, yes, that's, that's what I'm talking about. He was by himself when, when that happened. And Ananias went and obeyed. Uh, think of Peter's vision in Acts. He's alone on a rooftop praying and the Lord appears to him in a vision and confirms to him that, hey, the Gentiles need to hear the gospel. You need to go and preach to the Gentiles. And then lo and behold, like after he says amen, a whole bunch of troops of this Gentile uh, guy uh, named Cornelius show up. And they're like, hey, our boss came to like send us to get you. I don't really know why. And the Lord spoke to him in that dream and told him, you need to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And also, bacon is okay. Um, so that was an important one. Uh, think of the book of Revelation, right? John wrote the book of Revelation when he was alone on an island in the middle of the sea. He was imprisoned, right? All of these things happened between the Lord and a person when they were by themselves, right? And then think of all the effects that these things had on the communities around them, on the people around them. There's something special that the Lord does when we are alone with him. And it's, it's usually not some kind of grand vision or earth-shattering emotional experience, but it's something special. God does something with his people when they are alone with him. Um, so he gives us something that we need spiritually when we are alone with him that he only gives us in this way. It, it's, there's something that happens there that only happens then, and it transforms us over time. So uh, turning back to look at Jesus and his habit of solitude, uh, we can see that solitude helps us process, recover, and prepare. Uh, from what we can tell in the Gospels, Jesus lived an exhausting life. It wasn't like a hopeless, woe is me sort of life. He wasn't just 
you know, he didn't, it wasn't a terrible life, but it was a tiring one, right? Uh, he was human, after all. And exhaustion is something that we can all relate with. Work, when it is done well, is tiring, right? And the Bible is clear that work is valuable and good. So being tired is, is good if you're tired for the right reasons. Uh, raising children is exhausting. Keeping your home and everything in it in working order is exhausting. Taking care of your yard, tending to your garden, uh, caring for aging parents and grandparents, uh, paying your bills. Even vacation can be exhausting. Uh, it's not a bad thing, but the key is how do we deal with our exhaustion? How do we deal with life when it wears us down? Mark 1 tells us about a time when Jesus was likely worn out. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, he's ministering in Capernaum. And he's teaching in the synagogue when a guy with an unclean spirit shows up. So Jesus casts out the unclean spirit, and people are understandably amazed. Then he leaves there and goes to Simon's and Andrew's house, uh, where Simon's mother-in-law is there, sick, very, very sick. And Jesus heals her. So word starts to get around about what Jesus is doing. So that evening, people from all over the city started bringing him all kinds of sick people and people with unclean spirits for him to heal and to help. Uh, it says that the whole city was gathered together at the door. So it was kind of a big deal. Uh, and so Jesus, he spends that whole evening healing people and casting out spirits and touching people and pouring himself out. So in verse 35, after all this, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And can you imagine what it took for Jesus, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, to pour himself out like this for people. This is something he did over and over and over again. He gave of himself. Uh, we see from the Gospels that he was glad to do these things. It gave him joy. He had compassion for these people. He genuinely loved the people that he was ministering to, but it was still a draining thing. And so time and again, this is how Jesus dealt with his, exhaust, his exhaustion. This is how he dealt with the after effects of pouring himself out over and over again. Rising early, he withdrew to a desolate place to pray. The Greek word for desolate here means uh, lonely or lonesome or solitary. Sometimes it's translated as wilderness or desert or uh, secluded. The point is that Jesus went to a place where there was nothing and where there was no one so that he could be alone with God. Sometimes reading words like wilderness and desert, you think, well, Jesus went to these like really harsh environments so that he could like prove how holy he was and you know, whatever. That's that's not it at all. The point is that he went to where he could be somewhere he could be alone. That was that was the point of it. Jesus wasn't there to prove anything to anybody. He was there to be alone with his father. Spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically, he needed the sustenance that being with his father brought. He was dealing with a lot. And solitude can help recharge us. It helps us process and think through things so that we can see the bigger picture. When Simon came to find him, Jesus was like, all right, it's time for us to go. I've got stuff to do somewhere else. We need to go now. Presumably, Jesus thought through that decision when he was praying alone that morning, right? Like, that, like he probably could have stayed in town and kept doing the same sort of stuff, right? Like people, because we've seen that like once people get a taste of Jesus doing these miracles, they want more of it. They want more of him. And so he could have, probably could have stayed there. I mean, it seems logical, but Jesus says, you know what, we need to go. And that was an extension. That's something he said right after he came out of a time of, al of aloneness with God. Solitude is important to your spiritual life, but it isn't just a spiritual thing. Most spiritual things aren't just spiritual things. Uh, there, there's a, a psychologist named Dr. Sherry Borg Carter and she writes a lot about uh, trauma and stress and the effect that it has on the human body. And uh, she lists six benefits of seeking solitude. One is that solitude allows you to reboot your brain and unwind. There's a lot of ways to unwind in our world, and uh, a lot of them are unhealthy. But being alone is a healthy way to, to kind of clear our minds and kind of restart, get ready for what's coming next. Uh, 
Two, solitude helps to improve concentration and increase productivity. We live in an age where our attention spans are a lot shorter than they used to be. Being alone helps with that. Solitude uh, gives you an opportunity to discover yourself and find your own voice. When we're in a group of people all day, or when most of our conversations are with children, a lot of times it's hard to like figure out what we think and how we feel. And being alone, especially alone in the presence of God, can help us think through those things and figure that out. Four, solitude provides time for you to think deeply. The demands of everyday life can keep us from this, but this is something that's essential to the Christian life. We have to think deeply about things, because if we don't, we're, we're going to be led like sheep to the slaughter. I mean, it's just it's what happens, right? We have to pay attention. We have to think deeply about things, and solitude helps us do that. Five, solitude helps you work through problems more effectively. It's like when you're driving, and you're looking for the turn, so you turn down the radio, right? So make sure you don't miss the turn. It, it, there's no logical reason why that helps, but it does. It helps. And so being alone can help us work through our problems and think things through uh, in a way that we can't when other people are around. Solitude can enhance the quality of your relationships with others. When we are alone, especially when we're alone and we're praying for people, like that, that increases our empathy for people in a way that nothing else can. Because we're taking time from like all of, all of the things that we are doing to think about other people. It's really hard to do this when you're not by yourself. Right? This, this has a, an effect on your brain, which has an effect on your body, which is bound up all together with your spirit. Right? Solitude is important. And all these things, I think, are really just scratching the surface of how solitude can positively affect us. Scripture tells us that Jesus also got alone to grieve. John the Baptist, uh, as you probably remember, was his cousin. Uh, and uh, he had been imprisoned for calling out sin in the life of Herod's brother. So one of the, you know, not the big king, but one of the little kings. Uh, his, he, he called out his brother for doing something ugly. And so Herod put him in jail for it. John the Baptist is in jail, he's doing his thing. Well then, uh, Herod's niece, kind of like as a party joke, was like, hey, I want, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod gave it to him, right? Like, it's just this terrible, evil, demeaning way to die. Uh, seemingly meaningless. And how, how, do you, how do you process that? So Matthew 14, 13 says that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. We need companions in grief, whether we're mourning the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship or the loss of something that we love. But solitude plays a vital role in processing loss and figuring out how to move forward from it. Even for Jesus, it helps to clear the fog. Matthew 14 doesn't give the impression that Jesus got too much time to do this uh, right here because it says the crowds followed him to that desolate place when they heard he'd left. So he gets out of the boat at this place where he's going to be alone and there are all these people there. So what does he do? He goes up and he, he teaches them. He preaches to them. He doesn't say, actually, guys, I need a minute. He, he pours himself out again for a long time. And there's more than 5,000 people there. So he kind of finishes up and his disciples are like, hey, like, these people got to eat. So Jesus fed them. He had five loaves and two fish and he fed the whole crowd with it. And so he pours himself out and then he does this amazing miracle and he feeds all of these people. And then he tells his disciples, he's like, why don't, why don't you guys go ahead in the boat? I'll catch up with you later. I'll dismiss the crowds, right? So he sends everybody home. The disciples take off in the boat. And then in verse 23, it says, After he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He finally got that solitude that he was seeking. And who knows what happened between Jesus and the Father in those times when they were alone together. Being alone with God is an intimate awe-inspiring experience. There's nothing in the world like it. And we don't know what went on in private between Jesus and his father, just like nobody knows what goes on in private between us and the Lord. It's just, it's our time with him. He saves the church, and we're not called to just be Lone Ranger Christians, but there is something unique and personal that he does in each of our lives that's just between us. 
Revelation talks about when we, when we get to heaven, when we, when we end up in eternity with him, there's going to be a name that we get that nobody else knows but us and Jesus. You know, like, it's just beautiful. So, I think we, because Jesus was human, even though we don't know what went on, we can make some of these assumptions about him, about how solitude affected him physically and mentally, uh, because he became in every way like us, except that he was without sin, right? Like us, he was able to process the complexities of life, to recover from these draining tasks, to prepare for the tasks that were approaching, and even to grieve. And the more that his fame grew and the more that people heard about him, the more he continued in this practice of solitude. Often he would stay up all night by himself in prayer. That's what he was doing in the passage in Luke when he was in Gethsemane. He was by himself staying up all night in prayer. And those moments in Gethsemane were probably his final moments of solitude on this planet. You know? And can you imagine a, like, a heavier task to prepare for? Something, can you imagine something more grievous to process than what was about to happen to him? He was about to be estranged from his father for the first time and last time ever. He was about to take on the sins of the whole world when he had none. That's what he was doing when he was alone in Gethsemane. He found comfort and strength and resolve in being alone with his father, just like he had for his entire life. I mentioned earlier that cultivating spiritual disciplines is an important part of God's ongoing work of sanctification, the lifelong progressive process of making us holy in heart and conduct. Developing these spiritual habits, it invites the work of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of hospitality. We make space for the Holy Spirit to come in and to be with us instead of like keeping him outside and listening to him shout at us through the storm door. Like we're inviting the Holy Spirit in when we cultivate our spiritual disciplines. And solitude is unique among these habits because it's an environment in which other spiritual disciplines can flourish, right? So our second point today is that Jesus' habit of solitude is formative. It's formative. Now, I don't mean that Jesus needed to be reformed or sanctified or improved in any way. He was holy, right? Like, he didn't need any of that. But what I'm saying is that his habit is formative for us. It changes us. Habits shape you, and the habits of a Christian should shape us into the image of Christ. Solitude is like a quiet back porch. Maybe it's raining outside, maybe it's really hot, and the sun is, is glaring, but on your porch, you find some shelter from the weather. So you can sit and have a cup of tea, or you can take a nap, or you can eat lunch, or whatever. Under the, under the shelter of the porch, you can kind of like find some, some rest, some respite from the weather outside. And solitude is like this for our spiritual lives. It's a quiet shelter under which we can more freely pray and study and contemplate the things of God. It is the, the environment in which these things can flourish unhindered. So the first point under this is prayer. Most of the time when Jesus withdrew to be by himself, it says that he withdrew to be by himself so that he could pray. Uh, and sometimes he prayed all night. When Jesus was alone, he could be completely absorbed in prayer. Not in like a weird, like, turn off your mind and relax and float downstream sort of way, but in like true, honest communion and conversation with God the Father. Being alone limits our distractions. It turns down the noise. And we live in the noisiest, most distracted age in the history of humanity. Right? A lot of, you know, like this happens, like people are like, well, that... It's never been like this before. When I was a kid, and it was never, nothing was like this. Legitimately, this age, like, we have known nothing like it in human history. Uh, at my house, uh, well, like, we carry, we carry distractions around in our pockets. We, we strap them to our wrists. We arrange our living room furniture around them. Uh, like, I can sit on my couch, and I can speak to a little computer that will immediately play almost any song in recorded history. Or it will tell me the forecast. Or it will order me a new pair of flip-flops or groceries and have them delivered to my door. Right? Like, the, so if you have all these things at your, at your fingertips, like, well, that's fine. You want to use them. Like, these things are not sinful or bad, right? It's not bad to have a TV in your living room. The, the point, though, is, is that they distract us. Like, they can be distractions. Convenience and entertainment is fine. It's good, right? But we, if we're going to try to be alone with God... 
those things are not going to help. At least not very much. Maybe you look up a verse you need to or whatever, but it's not going to help. Uh, I, I ran across this quote from Tony Rinke the other day. Uh, just happened to be uh, scrolling through Twitter uh, instead of uh, finishing my sermon. But I, f- I found this tweet, and I was glad. Uh, it's not a tweet, but it's somebody, somebody mentioned it. And it sa- he said this, The smartphone is causing a social reversal. The desire to be alone in public and never alone in private. Right? It's just, it's just flipping things on their heads, right? And like that's, that's what happens. That's what happens to us. That's not what the Lord calls us to. Jesus didn't go off up to the mountain so that he could like... He went off up to the mountain to be alone with God. That, there was no other way around it. Like, I don't know. Solitude is being alone, but it's also being quiet. In every sense of the word, we have to create a quiet, simple environment in which we can pray or study or think in an unhindered way. Being around other people can also be distracting. Uh, I've made my personal time of solitude with God the hour or so before the rest of my family wakes up. Because once they wake up, all bets are off. There's, there's no finding any alone time. Um, and so when I, whenever I'm prepping for a sermon, I use that time to work on it. So I'm working on the sermon uh, the other day, and the twins wake up. And I'm like, I'm not quite done with the section that I'm working on. I was working on this section. I was like, I'm not quite done with it. So I'm trying to keep working on it. Uh, but I had to stop multiple times because I had to resolve a dispute over the matchbox cars. Uh, I had to give out some hugs. I had to explain how the flies got into our house. Uh, and Anyway, so all that to say, my time of solitude came to an end uh, at that point. Being, when you're around other people, it's hard to concentrate. We have to get away from other people. Uh, and Jesus didn't have any kids, but he had, I mean, reading these passages from Scripture, people were constantly making demands of him. They wanted things from him. And there were certain people who, it was because they believed. And they, they wanted to be close to him. And there was other people who was like, this guy is entertaining. Or this guy could get me somewhere. Or this guy could feed me for today. Like, people were constantly making demands of him. And he knew this. And so in order to be alone with his father, he would leave, and he would go someplace by himself. Uh, Another habit that thrives on the back porch of solitude is the study of Scripture. Solitude limits our distractions and gives us a quiet place, but it also unplugs us from the busyness of our lives. We always have something to do. We always have something to think about. And when we don't preserve space, because of that, we don't preserve space for our mind to get bored. Right? We always have something to do. We are too busy to get bored. And when we're not, we entertain ourselves to fill in the gaps. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for us to like, sit alone and gaze into the chasm of the truth of our humanity. <laughs> so, so we don't want to do that. But you can't study scripture very well if you're busy all the time or if you're entertaining yourself all the time. Reading, in general, is an exclusive endeavor. I suppose you could walk while you read or drive while you read, and I've known people who did both, uh, but it's, it's kind of dangerous. Some people can read while they're listening to music or while they're watching TV or whatever. It, it, I can't do that. I, I'm kind of like just one thing at a time. To read scripture and then to study it and to think about it, we have to stop doing other things. We have to press pause on all the stuff that we need to get done or all the stuff that we want to get done because all of it can wait for a little while, like all of it can wait for just a little while. The busyness of our age has convinced us that we have to keep hustling at all times, that we have to keep up with what's going on in the world at every moment, that if we unplug, we're going to miss out on opportunities and experiences that we will never get back. What I'm saying is that it's the opposite. If we don't unplug from the world around us, if we don't unplug from our busyness, we will miss out on experiences that are otherwise impossible to have. Yes. We have to unplug. Yes. So get alone, unhurry yourself, and see what the Word of God has to say to you. Quiet your mind so that you can think. Sit with the words of the Bible and let them do what they do. Inspire and convict and shape and encourage and motivate and move and teach. It can be uncomfortable for a number of reasons, but it is worth it. Studying scripture will also get its own sermon in the series, but like I said, it flourishes in this environment of solitude. A natural extension of prayer and study is contemplation. We must consider and meditate upon the things we read in scripture and the things that fill our prayers. 
We must think deeply about them without rushing. I don't mean you have to be an academic. I just mean that you have to sit quietly and patiently work through things. Remember when we were kids? We could sit alone for hours with uh, some cars or some blocks or dolls and just be lost in imagining things and playing, right? Nothing else mattered, right? And I think that being alone with God is similar because it exercises that same sort of creativity, the same muscle. We have to be able to become absorbed with just, just being with God, right? It, it, we're not, it's not some sort of escapism. It's not uh, negating reality, but it's, it's that whole, like, I'm just going to tune the rest of the world out for a few minutes, and I'm going to be alone. Thinking deeply as an adult is similar to that. We make space become lost in the things of God. I found this really great quote from Charles Spurgeon, which it's, you know, it's a thing, like, Whenever you're searching, whenever you're making a sermon, it's like, well, if you put a quote from Spurgeon in there, then, then you're on the right track or whatever, you know. But, like, he said a bunch of great stuff. Uh, and so this is something that Charles Spurgeon said. There are times when solitude is better than society, and silence is wiser than speech. We should be better Christians if we are more alone, waiting upon God and gathering, through meditation on his word, spiritual strength for labor in his service. We ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? Because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit that hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. How true is that of us and of our society? Think about your groceries. It wasn't very long ago that people knew where all their food came from. The eggs came from the chickens out back. The milk came from the barn, <coughs> from the cow in the barn. Uh, the, the turkey came from the hunt the other day. Uh, the, you know, like people knew where their food came from. Uh, and today, most of us buy all of those things prepackaged at the grocery store. And we don't think, we don't give any thought to the, the effort and the animals and the people that it took to get those things to the store for us to buy. This sort of thought-deficient consumerism is something that has worked its way into the church in a really strong way, too. To, to be palatable and relevant, teaching must be bite-sized, like pre-cooked. You know, uh, uh, a microwavable uh, Christianity. It must be bite-sized, positive, encouraging, and easy to understand. If it is simple enough to fit on a t-shirt or in a single tweet, even better. Don't make things too complicated or deep because people can't understand that stuff. Keep it simple. Keep it memorable. This trend has resulted in a sizable chunk of at least the American church that is biblically illiterate. Armed with just a couple of hands full of out of context verses, people rush into one cultural battle or another, or they rush into some sort of misguided evangelism. And if we're using the Psalm 1 tree analogy, this trend in evangelicalism, it's not, it is not that the tree planted by the streams of water that grows strong and its leaf does not wither. It's like the Bradford pear tree of American Christ, of Christianity, not just American Christianity. Have you seen the Bradford pear trees, right? People use them, and especially like developers have been using them for, for decades now because they're cheap, they grow quickly, they're marginally attractive, uh, and they, they take over everything around it, right? So if you need a tree in a yard and you need the house to look pretty quickly, you put a Bradford pear tree there. But the thing about it is, when the storm comes through, it's the first tree to go down because the roots don't go deep. The roots go wide, and it, it just it falls apart. Right? And it stinks when it blooms. They're just, ugh. <laughs> so that's not the kind of tree that we're called to be. In order to be like the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, we have to honestly and progressively consider the whole counsel of Scripture. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's not going to happen in bite-sized microwavable pieces. We must contemplate the words of God and listen for his voice as he speaks from the pages of Scripture. This takes time and effort. You have to do it on purpose. 
You have to be disciplined with it. And when you fail, you have to try again. What I'm talking about, it's, it's the key to the truest and most lasting joy that a person can have. Right? I'm not just talking about some like thing Christians could do, like, you know, you could give to this missionary, or you could read this, you know, Bible study book, or you could No, like this is bigger than all of that. This is joy. This is abundant life. Spiritual disciplines are the key to, to delving, to plumbing the depths of your spiritual lives. Right? There's nothing else that's going to be better than this. So let's talk about what, this, what that can look like practically. This is kind of where we'll, we'll tie things up. Uh, if, you, if you grew up in churchy circles in the 90s, you were familiar with the term quiet time, uh, which is a pretty apt descriptor of what our alone times with the Lord should be. Uh, quiet, uh, in all senses of the word, times to be alone with God. But oftentimes they're described as these like warm, fuzzy experiences where it's like, like every day you meet with the Lord and you have this soul-stirring thing happen. And, and that's just not always the case. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's kind of mundane and ordinary. Um, it's, it's like any other habit, and it takes practice. Most of you know that I teach music, so I spend a lot of time with people who are awkwardly finding their way around an instrument. And the first couple of weeks of someone learning to play the guitar are not very uh, glorious, right? It's, it's awkward. People are like getting used to the way the thing feels in their lap, and their fingers are sore, and they're trying to figure out how to get a good sound, and they, they, they're doing like weird things with their hands and their arms that they don't even realize they're doing. It's just, it's not very like, you know, it's not something you'd want to, and I can tell when somebody like, it on, like ends up like an American Idol or something like that, and they get up there with a the guitar, and I'm like, they have not been playing very long. And it's not because it necessarily sounds bad, because it's just like, they, they still don't really know what they're doing. And that's okay, it's a process. You have, it's a habit to learn. And so uh, the same is true of practicing solitude or any of the disciplines that we've mentioned this summer. You have to practice it. Uh, I want to commend this book to you. Uh, it's called Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. And it's something that we've used as a resource before when talking about spiritual disciplines. And a lot of the topics that we're covering this summer have come out of this book. Um, it's a good book. Uh, and I really like Mike Cosper. Um, it's about how spiritual disciplines can kind of like reorient our souls to stand in wonder of God on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and so in this chapter on solitude, he discusses three ways that we can practice solitude. <clears throat> and so the first one is regular solitude. I think it's on here it's going to say daily solitude. It's the same difference. Regular solitude is the idea of something that's ordinary and routine, like a rhythm in your life that happens. We have to set aside a daily chunk of time Start with 15 or 20 minutes. It doesn't have to be an hour or two hours or whatever. I've, I've heard of people who like pray for two hours every single day. Like, don't, 15 minutes. Set aside a chunk of time in which you are going to be alone with God. Put it on your calendar. It's time for prayer, time for studying, time for contemplating. Tell the people around you so that they know, hey, for the next 20 minutes or so, don't bother me unless someone is literally dying. Right? Like, leave me alone for the next 20 minutes. Right? Spouses, you can do this for each other. Right? Like, keep your kids, keep the phone, keep the, everybody away from your spouse so that they can be alone. And then y'all can swap. Right? You have, to, you have to work together and do this for each other. And then, so I mentioned earlier that in this season of my life, uh, the best time for me to do that is before everyone else uh, gets up. Right? Early in the morning. It might be your lunch break. It might be after dinner. Find what works for you. And you might have to try a few different things to find what works. That's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means that you're trying to figure out what works for you. The thing here is to not quit. To figure out when you can have your regular daily times with the Lord when you are by yourself and quiet. <clears throat> you will have to give up some time that you devote to something else. Right? Whether it's watching a favorite show, which you can watch all of them on demand now. You don't have to sit in front of TV to specify time. Uh, you're giving up a little bit of time of sleeping. You're giving up a little bit of time of something else. You have to give something up. When it's time, get alone. Go to a comfy, quiet place in your house. Or if you're scared you're going to fall asleep, don't sit in anything that's comfy. Um, go out on your porch. Take a walk somewhere where you can sit with your thoughts. 
uh, side note, but I, I think there's something to be said for the nature aspect of Jesus' withdrawing to be alone. He would withdraw to a mountain or out in a boat. Like, the, even for a out, not outdoorsy person, there's something holy about being outdoors. So take that as you will. Once you get to your quiet place, leave your phone somewhere else. Put it on silent. Make sure you can't see it. Don't wear your smartwatch. Don't turn on the TV. Just sit quietly with your thoughts before the Lord. And then pray and study and contemplate. If your mind wanders, don't beat yourself up about it. Some days, my entire quiet time is just me sitting there and saying, like, it's like I'm laying everything out on the table, like, well, God, I'm worried about this. I'm really excited about this. I don't know why I can't stop thinking about this. Uh, it, just laying it out there and saying, like, Lord, help me to be faithful with this. You know, help me to love you well and to love others well in these situations and help me to think about these in the right proportions, right? Like, help me not to worry about this thing so much if it doesn't really need all that thought, right? Help me to, you know, distribute my energies well. Sometimes that's all it is, and that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. If you don't read a chapter of Scripture every single day, like, it's okay. Read some. Think about it. Let it affect you. It doesn't have to be a, a pretty little Instagrammable experience. You just have to show up. Show up with your coffee and your Bible and keep showing up. Another form of solitude that Mike Koster recommends is little solitudes. So these are, are just kind of little moments throughout the day uh, when we are waiting for something. When, when we otherwise might reach for our phone, and it's still like, well, let me scroll through Instagram for a minute or, or, or whatever. Uh, it's when we're waiting for a doctor's appointment or waiting for a Zoom meeting to start or if you're driving in traffic, you shouldn't be scrolling Instagram when you're driving in traffic. Uh, uh, or even, even if you're, you know, waiting for nature to finish taking its course in the restroom, right? Like these, like that sounds silly, but these are all moments that we can redeem. Just, I mean, it's, not, it's okay to scroll, scroll Instagram when you're, when you're waiting for something. I'm not saying that you have to make every moment like just this like holy, you know, God-honoring worshipful experience. I'm just saying, like, we can redeem some of these moments throughout the day. And even though there are other people around and other things going on, Mike Cosper calls it an interior silence that we can find. We can memorize a short verse of scripture to pray, like, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Uh, or or you, can, you can pray short prayers that are related to what you're doing, like, Lord, help me to be faithful in this task. Uh, help me to love my brother well. Help me to, you know, like, like or you can pray for other people, right? Like little solitudes, little moments throughout the day when you can, in, in, a, in an inward way, just grab a moment, a minute, 30 seconds alone with the Lord. You can do that. We can also make plans for extended solitudes. Uh, extended solitudes are longer periods of time, like a whole day or a couple of days, to withdraw and be alone with God. Obviously, these are the hardest to pull off, and, you know, whatever. There's a lot of obstacles. But if you make a plan for things, they will happen. Maybe you've heard that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? It's, it sounds lame, but it is true, right? If you make a plan with your spouse or with your family or with your job or whatever, like, hey, I'm going to take a, take a day or I'm going to take this weekend or whatever, I'm just going to go be alone with God and pray, and read scripture, and, like, then you can make it happen. You, you can make it happen if you want to. And think of, think of the effects that that might have on you, especially if it's uh, a time in your life when you really need that, when you're making a big decision or you're going through something hard. Um, it can have a lot of positive benefits. So the point of spiritual disciplines is not to add something else to your to-do list. That's not... It's not it. It's, it's reorienting ourselves around knowing and growing in our relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. So keep trying and keep showing up. Uh, it might be strange at first, and you might mess it up, but it's not a burden. Jesus doesn't intend this to be a burden. He intends it to be a blessing. I think the solitude with the Lord is a routine kind of everyday embodiment of Matthew chapter 11. In verses 28 through 30, it says, Come to me, all who, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the truth 
of what our lives can be when we draw near to you. Help us to, to value that and to seek that out. Help us to understand the kind of life you want us to have. Help us to see what you've given us to make it possible, that you, your Holy Spirit indwells us. Lord, help us to reorient the things that make us joyful and the things that make us uh, happy, the things that satisfy us. Help us to properly order our affections around you. Lord, as we continue to um, delve into these different ways of, of cultivating our spiritual lives over the summer, Lord, help us to listen and, and to, to, to consider it personally and not just to be like, oh yeah, I've heard that sermon before. It's really easy for us to do, Lord. Help us to, to think deeply about these challenges about what your word says and help us to, to excel still more in drawing near to you. Lord, we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.